Chapter Sixteen of the Mohawk Valley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Mohawk Valley: Its Legends and Its History by W. Max Reed. Chapter Sixteen: Incidents Relating to the Early History of Amsterdam and the Mohawk Valley. In 1609, Henry Hudson, an Englishman, discovered the East and North Rivers, the latter of which he ascended in his boat to Aurania, now Albany, and soon after sold his right privately to the Dutch West India Company. In 1614, the States General of Holland erected a fort at Albany and called it Fort Orange. In 1663 and 64, the colony was subdued by the English and became known as the colony of New York. Albany was incorporated as a city in 1686. Albany County at that time comprised all of the land north as far as Canada and all of the lands west. At this time the present state of New York was possessed by the Iroquois and Canada by the Algonquins, the rivals of the Six Nations. Up to the burning of Schenectady in 1690, that village was the frontier settlement in the west, its neighbors being Fort Orange on the east, fifteen miles away, and Tyononderoga, a Mohawk Indian village, on the west, now Fort Hunter. About 1710, the German Palatines and some Holland Dutch from Schenectady settled along the Mohawk River, but located in every instance except one on the south side. This exception was one Geraldus Camfort, who secured a small grant of twenty acres in what is now the town of Amsterdam, on April twenty second, seventeen o three. On november second, seventeen o eight, the notorious Caeteroceros patent was given to Nanning Hermans and twelve others conveying about 700,000 acres, which included all of the land in the present town of Amsterdam, east of Guy Park, through Perth, Broad Alban, and part of what is now Saratoga County. This grant was evidently fraudulent, as the Mohawks were told that they were only granting enough land for one or two farms, whereas it embraced land five times greater than that of Manhattan Island. As soon as this great fraud was discovered by the Indians, they protested against it and resisted every attempt to settle on it. The patentees, as soon as they discovered how furious the Indians were at the deceit that would deprive them of such a great tract of their hunting grounds, desisted from all attempts to settle or sell any of this tract for a great number of years, hoping that in time the Indians would be driven from the valley and leave them in possession of their ill-gotten wealth. During Sir William Johnson's residence at Fort Johnson, he espoused the cause of the Indians and their desire to have this patent annulled. After a number of years, he succeeded in having this grant reduced to about 23,000 acres, which embraced the land in what is now known as the town of Amsterdam, east of Guy Park, and the town of Perth. Undoubtedly the contest over this patent, and the attendant hostility of the Mohawks, 
retarded settlements in Amsterdam for more than half a century, and the fact that Sir William could not procure lands near his estate at Fort Johnson on account of the Kaiderosseras grant was probably the reason that he concluded to build the town of Johnstown on lands he owned in that vicinity instead of in the valley. In 1788, all of the land in Montgomery County north of the Mohawk River was called Conwaga. Previous to that time, this district and the land on the south side was called Mohawk. In 1793, this town was divided into the towns of Conwaga, or Fonda, Amsterdam, Broadalbin, Mayfield, and Johnstown. In 1810, Old Montgomery County was the largest county in the state, its area being at that time 1,767,680 acres. Up to 1772, what is now Montgomery County was part of Albany County. In 1691 there were but nine counties in the state, and Albany included all north of Ulster and Duchess. An attempt was made to divide this county in 1769, but failed. A second petition was sent to the assembly by Sir William Johnson in 1772 and a new county was formed called Tryon County, which embraced all of the state west of a line running due north of the Delaware River, through and along the eastern limits of the present counties of Montgomery, Fulton, and Hamilton to the Canadian line. It was named Tryon from the governor of the colony, and Johnstown was designated as the county seat on May 10, 1772. Governor Tryon was so devoted to the British interests that his name became obnoxious to the patriots of the valley, and in 1784 the name of the colony was changed from Tryon to Montgomery County and comprised lands of the present counties of Fulton and Montgomery. In 1838 this county was again subdivided into two counties and named Montgomery and Fulton. Montgomery County being named from the Patriot, General Richard Montgomery, who was killed in the attack on Quebec, December 31, 1775. He had acquired possession of Chambly, St. John's, and Montreal, thereby becoming master of the greater part of Canada. On August 29, 1735, Charles Williams and others were granted a patent for a tract of land in the town of Florida containing about 14,000 acres, which was soon after sold to Sir Peter Warren of New York, the uncle of Sir William Johnson. This tract of land extended from the Mabee patent at the mouth of the Schoharie or Tyononderoga Creek about six or seven miles along the bank of said creek to a point about midway between Mill Point and Burtonsville. Thence from that point, in a straight line about eight miles long, to a point on the Mohawk River below Phillips Lock, about opposite Cranesville, and was triangular in shape. It was on this tract of land that William Johnson was located when he came to this country in 1738, at the age of twenty-three years. 
William Johnson was born in Warrentown, county of Downs, Ireland, in the year 1715. It is said that he fell in love with a young lady in Ireland, but was prevented from marrying her by her friends. About this time his uncle, Sir Peter Warren, made him a proposition to come to America and look after his landed estate, an offer he gladly accepted. He located at what was called Warren's Bush on the easterly border of the estate and the Mohawk River. He erected a small dwelling and store at a point on the Morris or John Blood Farm, about midway between the Brick Mansion and the house of Walter M. Major, and about one mile from Alexander and Hamilton Phillips, brothers who had located at what is now called Phillips Lock somewhat earlier. As early as 1716, one Philip Grote, a member of one of the Dutch families that had settled at Rotterdam, made a purchase of land near Cranesville, and was probably the first white man that settled on the north side of the Mohawk in the town of Amsterdam. From that date until after the Revolution, we do not find the names of any others who settled in this vicinity, except the Sir William Johnson settlements, at or near Fort Johnson, probably on account of the troubles over the Kayataraceros grant. The grant to Philip Grote conveyed all of the lands between the creeks, about one mile, and as far north from the Mohawk as he might desire. This embraced the present site of Cranesville. The settler saw perilous times from the very beginning. It is recorded that Philip Grote, when removing hither, was drowned in the Mohawk near Schenectady by breaking through the ice. He was in a sleigh accompanied by a woman, who was also drowned. His widow and three sons, Simon, Jacob, and Lewis, the latter being only four years old, with several domestics, made the intended settlement. They were the pioneers of Amsterdam and were sturdy, courageous people, as evinced by the stories that are told of those early days that tried men's souls and bodies. In 1730, the Grote brothers erected a grist mill at what is now Cranesville, said to have been the first mill of the kind erected on the north side of the Mohawk, and for a time served the settlement at German Flats, fifty miles away. The first bolting cloth was put in by John Burns, a German, in 1772. J. R. Sims says, In the summer of 1755, two hundred troops clad in rich highland tartans passed on their way to Fort Johnson, six miles above. Grote, observing a gate across the road, had been left open by the troops, went after sundown to shut it. When returning, it began to rain, and for temporary shelter, he stepped under a large oak tree. While there, three Indians, a father and sons, approached him. He took them to be Mohawks, and extending a hand to the oldest, greeted him in a friendly manner. The hand was received and firmly held by the Indian, who claimed Grote as a prisoner. Finding them in earnest and seeing them all armed with rifles, 
he surrendered. The Indians belonged to the Owanagunga tribe. They took him to their settlement in Canada, where he was forced to run the gauntlet. He was soon after sold to a French-Canadian named Louis de Snow, with whom he remained as a servant until the declaration of war between Great Britain and France, when he was claimed as a British prisoner and for six months imprisoned in St. Francis's Way near Montreal. He was finally liberated and returned home after an absence of four years and four months. The manner in which the town and city of Amsterdam was named is not generally understood, or rather in speaking of the occurrence we are apt to get dates mixed. We will have to rely upon tradition for the naming of the town, as there are no records of that event. Tradition says that shortly after Joseph Hageman settled at the place now called Hageman in 1787, having made some improvements on his homestead, he began the erection of a sawmill. At that time, 1788, all of the country north of the Mohawk was called the district of Caughnawaga. The scattered settlers had assembled for the purpose of raising the frame of Mr. Hageman's sawmill. This must have been a great event to the settlers of this district, and undoubtedly the occasion called forth all the able-bodied men for miles around. Those who may have attended the raising of a frame for a large building forty or fifty years ago will remember the immense beams and posts and girders which were first pinned together with wooden pins and then placed in position for raising. They will also remember that it was expected that the owner or contractor should furnish refreshments, sometimes sandwiches, often crackers and cheese, but always whiskey or rum. This was undoubtedly a notable gathering, brought there for a notable purpose, the erection of a sawmill, which was almost as necessary to the early settler as a gristmill the one to furnish bread, and the other the material for constructing the dwellings of those hardy pioneers. Undoubtedly the neighbors came from all points of the compass, either on foot or horseback, or in the primitive vehicles of those early days, no coach, landau, cabriolet, coupé, or handsome in the procession, however. I can imagine that Captain Emmanuel de Graff was there, and perhaps Lieutenant Peter Groot, proud of the wound he received at the Battle of Oriskany. Also George Schuler, Peter Van Warmer, and some of the Putnams and Hansons from Tribes Hill, Fred Lepper, William Klein, and some of the Swartz, Adam Sixbury, Nicholas, Isaac, Jeremiah, and Frederick de Graff, and a number of Scotchmen from Perth and Galway. Perhaps some of the lads and lassies accompanied their elders to see the fun. No doubt the question of the division of the large district of Caughnawaga had been under discussion for some time, and the division lines practically decided upon. Naturally, the question of a name for the new town that was to be would be a proper subject for discussion, and when the name of Amsterdam was suggested and an informal vote taken, it was unanimously agreed upon. 
upon the organization of the town at the final division of Caughnawaga in seventeen ninety three the wishes of the residents were respected and the new town was named amsterdam the village at the mouth of the chuctanunda was called vettersburg until april fifth eighteen o eight when at a town meeting said to have been held in the house of james allen now a farmhouse owned by stephen sanford being part of the hurricana farm the question of changing the name of the village from vettersburg to amsterdam was submitted to a vote which resulted in a tie james allen being president of the meeting had a casting vote and out of modest courtesy to the dutch element decided upon the name amsterdam most of the histories of amsterdam place the date of this town meeting in eighteen o four but from the records of the town clerk of the town of amsterdam it would seem that the correct date is that given above there is no record of the vote spoken of above having been taken however the first town meeting of the town of amsterdam after the division of the old town of Caughnawaga, was held at the house of isaac vedder on the first tuesday in april seventeen ninety four at which time the following town officers were elected daniel miles supervisor john p allen clerk james allen joseph hageman emmanuel de graff assessors james allen emmanuel de graff overseers of the poor james allen henry kennedy emmanuel de graff commissioners of highways nicholas hageman adam knave probably neff constables albert h vedder mindert wimple james allen fence viewers john groat poundmaster james allen place of meeting for seventeen ninety five and a long list of overseers of highways building road seems to have been their principal work as it is the only business that is recorded in the books of the town clerk among the list of taxpayers in seventeen ninety four were jeremiah de graff frederick de graff isaac de graff john de graff john de graff jr emmanuel de graff on the tax roll for seventeen ninety four we find that the assessment of jacob schuyler was four hundred and twelve pounds daniel miles four hundred and twenty nine pounds albert h vedder three hundred and twenty pounds william klein three hundred and eighty three pounds james allen two hundred and sixty six pounds frederick de graff two hundred and sixty pounds john l groat two hundred and twenty pounds ahasuerus marcellus two hundred and eleven pounds george schuler two hundred and seventeen pounds chris peak two hundred and fifty two pounds nicholas bratt two hundred and seven pounds ezra thayer two hundred and eleven pounds at the town meeting held at the house of captain john p allen on march first eighteen o three it was resolved that the town meeting for eighteen o four should be held at the house of gabriel manny at manny's corners 
at that time the place of meeting for 1805 was changed back to the house of James Allen, where it had been held since the organization of the town in 1794. At the annual meeting in 1808 it was resolved that the next town meeting be held at the meeting house in Vettersburg, and it is probable that the vote changing the name to Amsterdam was also taken at that time, 1808, as the record of 1809 says, The annual town meeting was held in the meeting house in the village of Amsterdam. After that date up to 1812, which is as far as the record extends, the annual election was held at the house of Joseph Oosterhout on Main Street, where the store occupied by Isaac Adler now stands. I have not been able to locate the house of Isaac Vedder, spoken of as being the place of the first election of officers for the town of Amsterdam. The only Vedder houses that I have been able to find is one that was occupied by Volkert Vedder, as laid down on the old map of 1807, and stood where the residence of Mrs. W. K. Green now stands, and the old Harmonis Vedder house, that formerly stood on the site of the present residence of Mr. Lauren Kellogg. The latter Vedder house was known as the Cornelius Miller house, which now stands on the west side of William Street, where it was moved about twenty years ago. On a map made in 1807, we find two Vedder houses, one occupied by Harmon Vedder, standing where the dwelling house of Lauren Kellogg now stands, which I have mentioned before. Residents of Amsterdam will remember this house as the old Cornelius Miller house, which was, within a few years, removed to the west side of William Street, and is now known as Number 12. The other house was, in 1807, owned and occupied by Volkert Vetter, and stood where the residence of Mrs. W. K. Green now stands. This house now stands on the north side of Green Street, and is known as Numbers 7 and 9, and belongs to the heirs of the late Mrs. James Bell. In one of these houses, probably the Cor Miller House, the first election in the town of Amsterdam was held. The election for 1795 was held at the house of James Allen. At what time previous to the above date the Allen House was built, we are unable to state, probably not many years. It was in existence, however, in 1793. It was evidently built for a public house, and kept as such for a good many years. James Allen conveyed it to his son-in-law, William Davis. Davis conveyed it to Alfred Birch, who occupied it until 1851, when he conveyed it to Alex Scott, who conveyed it to John Chalmers, who conveyed it to Stephen Sanford, who now owns it. Another old house is the Gabriel Manny Jr. House, on East Main Street, about one quarter of a mile from Elk Street. For a number of years this house was occupied by a Mrs. Ellsworth, and subsequently by George Ross. It was formerly one of the numerous stage houses that were so frequently seen along the Mohawk Turnpike from 1795 to 1840. 
there were two Gabriel Mannies, the senior living at Manny's Corners and the junior on the Mohawk Turnpike. Mr. Stephen Sanford is fortunate in being the owner of two of the oldest houses in Amsterdam, the old James Allen house on the Harakana farm and the Thomas house on the Round View farm. The Thomas house was probably erected by Henry Thomas in 1797, as Mr. Sanford is in the possession of a brick taken from one of the chimneys bearing that date. This house and the Allen house are in excellent condition, and considering their run of a century and over, present a very sturdy appearance, owing to the heavy timbers used in their construction. The Thomas, or as it is sometimes called, the Reed house, at Roundview, often attracts the attention of passers-by because it does not seem to be on a line with anything, unless it might be with the North and South Pole. This is accounted for by the fact that the old public road ran along what is now the rear of the house, which was formerly the front, as can plainly be seen by examining the rear door to the main hall. This door and casing is quite ornamental, and with its quaint side lights reveals the antiquity of the building. In those days there was no roadway on the south bank of the creek by Green Hill Cemetery. Persons who are in the habit of passing round view have noticed a triangular piece of land leading from near the barn and coming to a point at a stone wall on lands of Samuel Clisby. The north fence of this lot was the north side of the old road which ran between the barn and the house through the meadow and across the present road, and with a sharp turn, back into the field and through the center of the half-moon woods, and across the flats now covered by the waters of Kellogg Dam, past the old stone oil mill and entered the grounds of the present Greenhill Cemetery, by what is now the upper entrance opposite the old yellow house on the bank of the creek. Thence, following an easy grade up over the hill, the road came out at the present main carriage entrance to the cemetery, and so on down Church Street. This road was ordered straightened, as it is at present, and the width ordered four rods wide, December 14, 1809, the highway commissioners being David Shepard, Samuel Jones, and Duncan Stewart. It is thought that the dugway between Sanford's Dam and the Green Hill Cemetery was constructed a little later. The house at Roundview Farm was built in 1797 by Henry Thomas, and known as Henry Thomas's store, who probably conveyed the same in 1798 to William Thomas, who conveyed it to William Helling, January 14, 1806. Helling conveyed to William Reed, February 3, 1824. William Reed conveyed to Edward Reed in 1841. Edward Reed conveyed to Jane Dingman, who conveyed to William K. Green. Green to Richard Pierce. Pierce to R. H. Johnson. Johnson to Stephen Sanford, the present owner. While it was in possession of Mrs. Dingman, it was remodeled by changing the stairs in the main hall and by changing the front of the house to the south. Below this house on the south side of the road next below the J. Reed farmhouse 
is a building which i am inclined to believe was erected before seventeen ninety four and was the residence of elisha arnold the father of benedict arnold and father-in-law of william reed both well-known businessmen between eighteen o six and eighteen fifty william reed was born at speddock in the parish of hollywood and county of dumfries scotland november twelfth seventeen seventy nine sailed from greenock june first eighteen o two and arrived in the port of new york august eighth of the same year and came immediately to amsterdam by sloop to albany on foot to schenectady and by bateau up the mohawk river he soon opened a school on the rocks at rockton where he taught for four years in eighteen o six he married the daughter of elisha arnold and a little later in connection with his brother-in-law benedict arnold kept a general store on main street contemporary with the above-named persons at eighteen o six we find the names of osias bronson the grandfather of james bronson who moved here in eighteen o two timothy downs daniel miles tullock e e de graff barnes vedder de forest blade roseboom waters thomas and esmond matthew bovey and others the house now known as the voorhees mansion was built by garrett roseboom the latter part of the last century and was one of the numerous stage or road houses scattered along the mohawk turnpike in the early part of the last century this quaint old building both in its exterior and interior bears the impress of antiquity i lately called upon the two surviving members of the family messrs stephen and george voorhees and was most cordially received by those hale and hearty good fellows at first i felt like sympathizing with steve and his nearly lifelong affliction but when i noticed how ready the younger brother was to use his eyes for the comfort and pleasure of the other i was conscious that at home at least he did not feel the loss of his sight as when abroad this old building with its exterior of severe simplicity is a landmark that cannot fail to attract the attention of passers-by architecturally it cannot be called beautiful but there are very few of our old residents who would care to have it marred by an attempt to modernize the structure i think it was james g blaine who said that he did not like those changes that make an old building queen anne in front and mary anne behind approaching the place from market street we first see the substantial stone wall and iron gate that is so familiar to all the young boys and the old boys of the last century how many of the old boys that have grown up in our city can say that they have never played on top of this wall and under the shade of those venerable maples many of both sexes have pleasant memories of it as a trysting place in the moonlight in days gone by I think it is remembered equally with the old pine tree at the end of the walk on east main street which stood where the parsonage of st mary's now stands the front of the mansion is practically the same as when built the only change noticeable is in the wing at the east end 
were the tall pillars which formerly reached to the roof and formed a high narrow portico have been replaced by a two-story piazza the house as seen from the street with its plain white walls and antique doors and windows would never be mistaken for a modern structure the severely plain front door with its old-fashioned iron door-knocker representing the hooded head of an egyptian princess the latticed storm door of the wing the stone flagging branching from the gate to the reach the two doors are the same as when i first saw them in my childhood but i miss the four plain white pillars in front of the wing that succumbed to the hand of time and were replaced by the structure spoken of above as we pass the front door we enter at once into a wide long hall with broad stairs at the end with the usual slim balusters and handrail of polished mahogany grown dark with age the room on the west side was formerly used as a parlor and the woodwork of the doors and casing and the mantel over the deep fireplace show the ornamental molding and carving that we so often find in houses built a century ago on the east side of the hall is a large square room lighted by two windows in front this room was the hotel office and bar room when the house was used as a roadhouse in the early part of the last century and called the roseboom house scattered among the modern pieces of furniture in this room are several pieces of dark mahogany or rosewood that are unique in their well-preserved antiquity on the walls are two well-executed oil paintings of interest one of which represents a very pretty woman of perhaps twenty-five years in the short waist and scant skirt in vogue in those early days this is mrs betsy voorhees the wife of dr samuel voorhees the other painting is a portrait of an older woman and is a very well executed likeness of mrs reynolds whose maiden name was bartlett and the mother of mrs samuel voorhees and marcus t reynolds the little cap that adorns the head is beautiful in its quaint simplicity the voorhees family which includes the amsterdam and the florida branches are descendants of stephen Querte van voorhees born in sixteen hundred at hayes holland and came to this country from before the village in april sixteen sixty and settled at flatlands long island the meaning in english of the holland name van voorhees is from before the hees van meaning from voor meaning before or in front of and he's being a small village about five miles from ruinen holland which contained in sixteen hundred nine houses and about fifty inhabitants dr samuel voorhees was a man of great individuality and is remembered as a man of ability in his profession his appearance in his later years was such as to attract attention a spare man of medium height and a slight bend forward when walking snow-white hair and whiskers which he wore in long fringe around the edge of the jaw his short quick steps and the ever-present cane was a familiar sight on main street for a great many years 
He died November 1, 1870. This brief account of the Voorhees family would not be complete if I failed to mention another member of the family, Mrs. Betsy Voorhees. She was a sister of the well-known lawyer Marcus T. Reynolds, and was a woman of great intelligence and marked force of character, who kept in advance of all the projects of reform advocated by her co-workers, Mrs. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucy Stone, and Mrs. Bloomer. She died February 8, 1858. Mr. Stephen R. Voorhees informs me that John V. Henry, at one time a prominent man in the village of Amsterdam, and also owner of Guy Park in 1805, was brother-in-law of Commodore Charles Wilkes of the American Navy. John V. Henry had a son who was named for the Commodore and called Wilkes Henry. He was a schoolmate of Stephen Voorhees in the old red schoolhouse that formerly stood where the East Main Street brick schoolhouse now stands and which was burned in the great fire of the summer of 1856. Wilkes Henry, when a young man, went on a voyage with his uncle, the Commodore, in the exploring expedition of 1838-42, to 42, at which time they visited the Fiji Islands. Young Henry asked leave to go ashore with the boat crew. Permission being granted, they rowed for the shore, disappeared, and were never heard from again. It was always supposed that they were captured by the savages and roasted and eaten. It is said, however, that in later years the Fijis preferred the flesh of a nice plump female savage to a white man, as they found the flesh of a white man insipid, and having the flavor of tobacco. This reminds me of the questions of a young irrepressible who had been told a story of a missionary having been eaten by a cannibal. "'Papa,' he says, "'will the missionary go to heaven?' "'Yes,' said the father. After a pause, the boy says, "'Pa, will the cannibal go to heaven?' "'No, of course not,' says the father. "'Pa,' says the boy, "'how can the missionary go to heaven if the cannibal don't?' In the year 1826, General Lafayette passed through Port Jackson on the Erie Canal on his way to the western portions of the state. It was not known that he was on the packet until it was near at hand. Consequently, no organized reception was made in his honor. However, about fifty of the residents hurried over in time to see him, but were so overawed at his presence that no one made an effort to speak to him. Among those who were present was Mrs. Samuel Voorhees, who transmitted to him a pair of fine worsted stockings knitted by herself of one hundred stitches to the needle. Afterwards Mrs. Voorhees received a letter from Lafayette acknowledging their receipt and expressing thanks for the gift. Today this letter is one of the most valued possessions of the Voorhees family. They are also in possession of six mahogany chairs, formerly the property of Sir William Johnson. Ozias Brownson, or Bronson, came to Amsterdam in 1802 
and later became a tenant on a farm belonging to Dr. Samuel Voorhees, who at that time lived in Amsterdam. Somewhat later, George W. J. Bronson, the son of Ozias, married a daughter of Garrett Roseboom, the builder of the Voorhees mansion. Anthony Roseboom, a brother of Mrs. George Bronson, was born in this house and is still living in Fultonville at the age of ninety-five years. Mr. George Bronson and his bride went to housekeeping in the old yellow Voorhees house, which formerly stood on the north side of Main Street, near the site of the Yund Block. Ozias Bronson subsequently bought a farm west of the village and built a farmhouse, which was afterwards burned to the ground. Our people have known this place as the Forbes Farm, which is now owned by St. Mary's Church and used as a cemetery. In 1796, a bridge having been built across the Schoharie, a turnpike was opened from Canajoharie to Albany on the south side of the Mohawk River, and with its extensions called the Great Western Turnpike. In order to accommodate the tide of emigration up the Mohawk Valley, the gate to the west, efforts were made to improve the thoroughfares, especially from Schenectady to Utica, and on April 4, 1800, a charter for the construction of the Mohawk Turnpike was granted. In 1802 or 1803, Seth Wetmore and Levi Norton came from Litchfield, Connecticut, and interested themselves in the turnpike enterprise. They, with Ozias Brownson, Hewitt Hill, and three others, formed the first board of directors. The turnpike was not constructed so much for stages as for transporting the immense quantities of merchandise and produce to and fro from Albany to Utica and Oswego, and subsequently to Buffalo and the Great West. The wagons used were ponderous vehicles drawn by four and sometimes six and eight horses and must have resembled the prairie schooners of the west with their canvas covers. To accommodate this great traffic, houses were built along the turnpike and those already built were utilized for road houses, as they were called, for the accommodation of man and beast. These were equipped with a bar, a few beds, and large sheds. The farmers in those days would drive their own teams and take along provisions for themselves and their horses, and by paying a sixpence for a bed and buying a quart of whiskey, would find a place under the shed for their teams. The stages were large conquered coaches, swung on leather thoroughbraces, with room for six passengers inside and as many more outside with six or eight horses and a change of teams at every important stage house and as the road improved in later years it is said to have been a stirring sight to see the experienced driver arrive at a hotel with horses on a gallop his long whip cracking over their heads while his helper blew his horn with a toot 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 which was a signal for all the idle men and boys to gather to see the stage come in, which was the supreme event of the day. The following extract from Mr. Thurlow Weed's autobiography 
gives an interesting account of a stage journey on the Mohawk Turnpike in 1824. After speaking of his journey from Rochester, he says, Nothing of special interest until we reach Spraker's, a well-known town that neither stages nor vehicles of any description were ever known to pass. Of Mr. Spraker, Sr., innumerable anecdotes were told. He was a man without education, but possessed strong good sense, considerable conversational powers, and much natural humor. Most of the stories told about him are so Joe Millerish that I will repeat but one of them. On one occasion he had a misunderstanding with a neighbor, which provoked both to say hard things of one another. Mr. Spraker, having received a verbal hotshot from his antagonist, reflected a few moments, and replied, "'Ferguson, there was worst men in hell than you,' adding after a pause, with a growl, "'But they was chained.' At Canajoharie a tall handsome man with graceful manners is added to our list of passengers. This is Honorable Alfred Conklin, who, in 1820, was elected to Congress from this district. In passing Conyers Hotel, the fate of a young lady, who loved not wisely but too well, with an exciting trial for breach of promise, etc., would be related. Still farther east, we stop at Failing's Tavern to water. Going some miles further east, we came in sight of a building on the west side of the Mohawk River, and near its brink the peculiar architecture of which attracts attention. This was formerly Charles Kane's store, or rather the store of the Kane brothers, five of whom were distinguished merchants of the forepart of the present century. Here Commodore Charles Morris, who, in 1812, distinguished himself on board the United States frigate Constitution, he was Lieutenant Morris at that time, and was wounded in the engagement. In her engagement with the British frigate Guerriere, passed his boyhood. The next points of attraction were of much historic interest. Sir William and Guy Johnson built spacious and showy mansions a few miles west of the village of Amsterdam, long before the Revolution, in passing which interesting anecdotes relating to the English baronet's connection with the Indians were remembered. A few miles west of Sir William Johnson's, old stagers would look for an addition to our number of passengers in the person of Daniel Cady, a very eminent lawyer, who resided at Johnstown, and for more than fifty years was constantly passing to and from Albany. At Amsterdam, Marcus T. Reynolds, then a rising young lawyer of that village, often took seat in the stage, and was a most companionable traveler. Sims speaks of the following tavern-keepers along the Mohawk River. On Tribes Hill, Klein, Putnam, Wilson. Guy Park, James McGork. Amsterdam, Colonel William Schuler, Cranesville, Crane. Below, Lewis Grote, Swart, and others. End of chapter 16. Recording by Roger Moline.